Let me ask you to bow with me as we come now to the scripture. Father in heaven, uh, this is your word and there are times when we're ready to hear it and times when we're not. Uh, but I pray that you would ready us now. Uh, that through what we've sung and prayed already, through our, our consideration of the fact that we're in your presence on a day that you've set apart for us to be with you, to worship you together as a company of people. I pray that now you will ready our hearts to really hear this word. Take away any distractions, any resistance that we might have, Father. And now in the richest and deepest sense of the word, I pray that you would bless us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Acts and uh, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, please. I want to read the first 15 verses. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. And now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollyona, um, I'm sorry, Apollyana, yeah, they... It's bad when Thessalonica is the easiest word to say. Uh, They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary um, for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money of security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews were more, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul, uh, brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Again, remember, as we work our way through the book of Acts, we're, we're seeing what Jesus continued to do and teach. Luke, in his first volume, uh, which is the Gospel of Luke, uh, gave us what Jesus had begun to do and teach, and now it's what he continues to do and teach. Obviously, Jesus isn't physically present, so he's doing this and teaching this, Uh, by his Holy Spirit through those who follow him. Uh, Jesus told his 
his disciples that they were to wait in Jerusalem and, and they were to receive power because the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and they would be his witnesses. That was the name he gave to them. They would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so they were going to take the message, the truth of this gospel and spread it. And in so spreading it, then they would expect to see the church being built and the kingdom of God being seen, the kingdom of God being manifested, the rule of God through Jesus Christ would be seen in the lives of people and it would have effect uh, all throughout the world. And so we, uh, we've seen that as we worked our way through the book of Acts. Uh, I trust we're seeing that even today in the course of our own church life in the course of the world today. But we saw, see it in the book of Acts. We saw it in Jerusalem. Uh, we, see, we saw it in, Jeru- in Judea and Samaria. And now we're seeing this gospel go to the ends of the earth. And it's going by way, uh, at least in Luke's emphasis here, as he gives us um, kind of a travel log of, of the missionary journeys of this man named Paul. And right now he's on a second journey where he's been set apart by the church and he's with a guy named Silas. And, and, and you remember that they started out to visit some of the churches that Paul had already planted and the Spirit of God directed them in a different way. He said, no, you can't go here and no, you can't go here. So some, some negative sort of guidance. And then he gave him a vision and says, I want you to go to Macedonia. And so he proceeded to do that. So he's on in the midst of that journey uh, to and through uh, Macedonia. So now he comes to this place in Thessalonica. And his MO here is very similar to what it's been all along. He first camps out in a synagogue, if there is one there, and there is one in, in Thessalonica. And so he, he goes to the synagogue. And it's, it's an advantage to him because he can use the scripture because there are people there who, who have read the scripture, who, who believe in some sense that it's a word of God, these Jews and God-fearing Gentiles that come, and, and, and he sits and he reasons with them. And, and then he's going to leave there and go to Berea and do the same thing. Finds a synagogue and he, and he presents the gospel through the Old Testament texts and through uh, what Jesus has done historically, that is through the coming of Jesus and all that he did. Uh, So the MO is quite the same. He finds a synagogue, opens the scripture, reasons with them to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Um, The the end result is the same as well, it appears, that that some believe. It's interesting in in this particular uh, uh, section of of Paul's journey that it highlights uh, the kind of people that that come. Many devout Greeks in verse verse 4 and a few of the leading women. And then in, in Berea, he says many... Uh, of them believed that a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so, so you get the sense that in the context of the church, there's a mix of people. There's, there's poor, but yet also on the other end, there's these people of high standing as well. So there's this, this, this church of, of, of many facets, if you will, many different kinds of people entering into uh, uh, faith in Christ, entering the church and manifesting the kingdom of God. And then persecution comes. It comes in, in Thessalonica as people as, as, as the Jewish leadership seems to be jealous. Uh, uh, Paul taking converts, if you will, away from them. And then when he goes into Berea, it seems that the, the Jewish people in Berea is, weren't, weren't quite of the same ilk. He says they're of more noble character, so they didn't come against Paul. They actually listened to him and reasoned with him. But the Jewish people in Thessalonica who were upset came to Berea and started the same kind of trouble there. And so in both places, Paul was persecuted. 
So we see a very similar MO for Paul as he goes on these journeys. He finds people that are interested. He goes to the synagogue. He reasons with them from the scripture. He presents Christ, Jesus as the Christ. Um, some believe, obviously, some don't. And then he finds himself being run out of town uh, in both cases. Now, what I want to do today is just take one sentence out of all of this. Now, there's a number of sentences that I could take out of this that could be helpful, and, and maybe I'll do that in the weeks uh, to come. Uh, for instance, it, it would be interesting for us, I think, to, to think through the fact that Paul uses the Old Testament scripture. We'll do some of that, but that won't be my key emphasis. Uh, especially in Berea, you know, the great classic verse where they, 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 they checked Paul's message against the scripture. They, they diligently searched the scripture. Uh, we've all heard sermons and good ones uh, to that effect, I'm sure. Um, we certainly have this expression in, in verse 6 where, it, where Luke writes uh, and quotes the city authorities who say, these men have turned the world upside down. Uh, that'd be a great thing for people to say about our church. I mean, it would be great to change our name from grace to the church that turned the world upside down church. Wouldn't that be good? I mean, to be known as that, obviously, that's through grace, but, but, uh, but that would be something we could spend our time on, but I don't want to do that. What I want to spend our time on today is the sentence that's in verses 2 and 3. And I want to do that because, I don't know about you, but Christmas always surprises me. Uh, it's been happening at the same time every year, at least for the last 55 uh, and, 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 and yet still it surprises me when it shows up. And it's so tremendously easy for us to get distracted, interestingly enough, away from the gospel because the celebration of Christmas as other, as other church kinds of celebrations uh, have come to us throughout history in order to focus our attention upon Christ. Uh, many of these events, like the celebration of Christmas, come at a time when, they were, when it was originated uh, others who weren't believers were having other kinds of celebrations. And so, so this time was set out to celebrate the incarnation, to celebrate the birth of Christ. And so it enabled Christians then to focus attention on Christ. But as we know in our culture, uh, the world has so commandeered Christmas that now we have to fight in order to maintain our focus upon Jesus. Uh, and so this, this one sentence... I think if we can keep it in mind, will help us do that, not just at this time of year, but throughout the course of our lives. Because if there's anything that's challenged that could, that could be a fatal blow to the Christian faith, it's what's in this sentence. And it's been challenged throughout history. It's being challenged even now in the church. Uh, and so it's important for us. Verse 2. It says, And Paul went in, and as was his custom, as we've said, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you uh, is the Christ. Now notice, it was Paul's purpose to uh, bring them to the point of being able to see that Jesus is the Christ. And he did that by reasoning with them, showing that it was necessary. If you have an NIV, it says that Christ had to. There wasn't any other way. There wasn't any other choice. But it was necessary for him to suffer 
and we could put in parenthesis and die. It doesn't say that in the text, but it does say and rise from the dead. So in order to rise from the dead, you have to first die. So he's, his suffering obviously led to and was part parcel of his death. And then he was rise. It was necessary for all that to happen. Uh, and thus, if he didn't suffer, die, and rise, then he wouldn't be the Christ. And we know that Christ is the Greek for Messiah, which is Hebrew. So as you're reading through the Old Testament on a few occasions, you have to read into the text because it's generally translated anointed or anointed one. Because the word Messiah and the word Christ means to anoint or to be the anointed one. And so they were looking for this anointed one. You might remember that when John the Baptist came on the scene, they asked him, are you the Christ? Because they were looking for this Messiah to come, this Christ to come, this anointed one to come, this one who would come and deliver. You remember, perhaps, that when Andrew found Jesus, well, Jesus found Andrew, Andrew went to Peter, his brother, and said, we found the Messiah. We found the Christ. Uh, he's here. So they were looking for this one who would be the Christ, this anointed one to come. And we know in the Old Testament that those who were anointed were prophets and priests and kings. They were the ones anointed, set apart by God. In, in a sense, they, they prefigured or they gave us an idea of, of what Messiah would be. And so as, as prophet, Messiah would come in and speak the truth from God. As priest, he would come and represent the people to God and bring reconciliation, reconciliation between the people and God. As king, he would come and rule over them and rule over the nations. And so Messiah, this one who would come, this Christ, this anointed one, was the very one chosen by God to come and redeem his people and redeem his people in such a way that he would, he would, he would restore them to relationship with God and he would rule over them, and he would rule over the nations. He would have conquered all their foes, and all of this to the glory of God. So Messiah comes, chosen by God, to redeem God's people, to defeat their foes, to rule over them and the nations, and to do all of this unto the glory of God. And so they were expecting this very one to come, this one to personify prophet, priest, and king. And so Paul comes and he says, this Jesus is the Christ. And he reasons with them from the Old Testament. He very well could have gone back all the way to Genesis chapter 3 in a text that, that is so important to the whole Bible. In fact, John Currid, who's a professor of Old Testament at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary and was here a number of years ago, made this statement. He said, everything after Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is simply a footnote to that passage. Because Genesis 3.15 in effect says that there is one coming from the seed of the woman who, whose heel will be bruised, but who will crush the head of the serpent. And so everything from that point on is, is, is the fulfillment of that. We see that, that someone is going to come, and so the anticipation is that. And so, so as we read through the Old Testament, we find Abraham and, and his family is set up and the promise is made that, that this one is going to come from your descendants, that one of your seed is going to come. He's going to be a seed of, of Abraham, and he's going to bless all the nations of the world and all of that. And so we see that 
that, that promise there. And so perhaps uh, Paul was even reasoning uh, from there. Uh, he could have looked through the whole Old Testament system and seen prophets who would come and speak the word of God, priests who would come and represent the people before God, prophets to come to say, this is the word of God. Live it out. And the priests would come and, sit and, and, and represent the people before God and make sacrifices so there could be reconciliation between God and people. And the king would come and rule over them and defeat their foes. In fact, so true was this was that, that even Moses was told that there would be one who would come uh, after him, who would be like him. Uh, for instance, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 18, in verse 15, we read this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, that is like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so Paul could have gone back to this passage and said, listen, there's a prophet like Moses going to come and speak the truth. And he's going to represent uh, God uh, to the people. They must listen to him. We know that, that David was a king and he was one who, who, who brought a measure of peace into the lives of the people because he conquered their foes and he was a great deliverer. And so a promise is made concerning David. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God writes and says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. And so they were expecting one like Moses, a prophet, one like Moses, a deliverer, one like David, a king. In fact, as we read through the Psalms, we we find this king being spoken of. For instance, in Psalm and chapter 2, we read this verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And then in Psalm 110, a psalm that Jesus himself quotes of himself and others quote of him as well. We find that this king is one who is not only a king but a priest. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this one who's going to come as king is one who's also going to be priest. So he's going to make reconciliation with God as priest and he's going to rule over all the nations. They were expecting this very one to come. And of course, we, we read of this this morning, 
um, or heard of it, at least in our call to worship from Isaiah in chapter 9. Uh, the very, very, very familiar words uh, to us concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time, on, this time forth and forevermore. So someone's going to come and he's going to be king and he's going to bring reconciliation and he's going to bring peace and all of this. And so they were expecting that. And so what Paul is trying to do as he comes to these people is saying, Jesus who's come is this Christ, is this Messiah now Trust in him. And to do that, he says, I want to show you that it's necessary, it was necessary for him to suffer, to die, and to rise from the dead. It was necessary for him to do that. Now, if somebody came to you, if your neighbor finds out that you're a Christian, or if you're sitting on an airplane and you're reading your Bible and the person next to you finds out that you're a Christian. Or if your roommate knows that you're a Christian, or your parents, or somebody knows that you're a Christian, they come to you and they say, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer? What would you say? Give yourself just a, a little quiz. How would you answer that, okay? I'll give you time. You know, just, just how, how, that's, that's an answer We've got to be able to come up with like that. We've got to know the short of it, and we've got to know the long of it. Because that's the very heart of the gospel. Paul said it was necessary. In other words, if he didn't suffer, die, and rise, then he wasn't the Christ. And for him to be the Christ, that is to to really deliver us, for him to come chosen by God in order to redeem us, in order to defeat our foes, in order to rule over us in the nations, he's got to suffer. He's got to do that. That would have been a hard thing for anybody to get their mind around because they had in their sense someone coming like Moses, who was powerful, it appeared. Somebody coming like Elijah, that was, a pow- that was powerful, it would appear. Somebody coming like David, who was powerful. And yet, to hear that this one who was going to come as Messiah, as Christ, had to suffer would have been, shouldn't have been, but, but would have been a hard thing for them to get their minds around. And then to have seen Jesus go through what he did and to, to, to hear the accounts of all of that in his suffering and his death. Why was it necessary for him to suffer, die, and rise? And you see, that's the heart of everything that we believe and everything that we understand. If we don't get that, then we don't get it. All right? This is that important. And let me put it like this. However you answer that, I I trust you answered it in in a good way. Um, You don't have to turn in your papers. But uh, let me begin by saying this. The reason that Christ had to suffer, die, and be raised was to fulfill his purpose. His purpose, as was laid out to Joseph when the angel came to him, to tell him about Mary having a child, said to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So for Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, to be this anointed one, 
he was going to have to fulfill the purpose of saving his people from their sins. To do that, therefore, he would need to suffer, die, and rise. Right? So to fulfill his purpose, he had to do it. And, and, and the reason that his purpose even existed was because of our sin and because of the character of God in his justice and his love. Because you see, in one sense, Jesus would not have had to come and would not have had to die. Because it's really not his problem, it's ours. The problem is our sin. We're the ones who have to die for our sins. I mean, that's the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. And sin is, is our lack of righteousness and our unrighteousness. Righteousness is being right according to a particular standard. Righteousness is being right according to a particular standard. So, a student is righteous in their class when they meet the standard of their professor. That would be righteousness, whatever that standard would be. Let's, let's be hard-nosed about this and say it's 100%. So, if a student gets 100% on an exam, that's being righteous. Um, righteousness to a free-throw shooter would be to make his shot. That's righteous. It's unrighteous. The standard is making it. Then unrighteous is missing it. All right? Uh, so it's right according to a particular standard. Now, the standard of God is God. His character. His perfection. So unrighteous is missing that mark, missing the glory of God. Scripture says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So sin is coming short of God's glory, coming short of reflecting Him, coming short of honoring Him as, as God, coming short of, of obeying Him and all that's true of Him. And so when God gives us His law, this isn't some arbitrary thing that He kind of throws at us. It isn't some external thing, something apart from Him. But the very law of God is a reflection of the very character of God, who He is. And so sin is any lack of conformity to that law. It's any deviation from it. It's any not honoring God as God. It's the very one who's made us and has rights over us. That's unrighteousness. That sin. And the wages of that is death because God gave us life. I know this is both familiar and heavy all at the same time. But, but, but this will help your soul. Alright? This will help your soul to think this through. Now, the wages of that sin, the result of that, the thing that we earn from that and merit from that, is to be separated from the life of God. God gave us life. And so for him to be just, which he is, and he takes life away. He removes it from us. We didn't treat it as he gave it to us to be treated. And so justice says, I'm going to remove that from you. I'm going to take that away from you. And so he takes life away from us. And so the wages of sin is death. And that, that separation of God for all of eternity, that we're, we're not under his blessing and care, results in something called hell. Something that's miserable. Something that's painful. 
and also something that's punitive. It's what we deserve, you see, for breaking this law. So, so that's what we deserve. So in one sense, Jesus wouldn't have had to come at all. God could have simply judged. But because God's character is not simply justice, but also love, the scripture says that God is light. There's no darkness in him at all, that he's perfectly pure, just included, justice included. But he's also love. This characterizes the very person of God. And so Jesus had to come and suffer, die, and rise because of the character of God, his justice, and his love. Because in his love, he desired to be reconciled to people, but he couldn't overlook his justice, right? And so Jesus comes, and Jesus comes and takes this punishment for our sin upon himself. That God's justice can be satisfied and God's love can be expressed. So he had to, if he was going to fulfill that calling upon his life to be Messiah, to be Christ, to reconcile us to his Father, to save his people from their sins. Okay? He had to do that. He had to take the penalty so God's justice could be satisfied, God's love could be expressed. One of the most wonderful little expressions in all of the Bible is the little expression for us. He did it for us. Let me read you some of the for us passages uh, from Isaiah 53, which I read, we read for our um, profession of faith. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many from Jesus' own lips. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans chapter 4. Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, raised for our justification. Romans 5 verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely dare die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And then Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We wait for the, our blessed hope 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And just as it is appointed, Hebrews chapter 9, for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 1 John 2.2, 2. he's the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Revelation 1.5, and this comes from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. For us, Jesus, for us. He did it for us. It was necessary for us. It was necessary for him to suffer and for him to die. And certainly Jesus did suffer. Um, His suffering was no doubt physical, uh, but it was more than that. Remember, it was Martin Luther who read Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther recalled that being on the lips of Jesus from the cross, and it startled him. He said, Why would the Father forsake his Son? His Son had done nothing wrong. Why would the Father forsake the Son? And then as he was coming, really, to understand all of this truth about Jesus, he realized that Jesus was forsaken not because of his own sin, but because of the sin of others, because of our sin. And that's when it came to him for us. I may be the only Christian left on the face of the earth who has not seen the passion of the Christ. Um, Everybody else I know has seen it, and that's fine. Most everybody in my family has seen it, and I've encouraged them to, and I've certainly never discouraged anybody from seeing that movie because I'm sure it's, it's great. And I have all kinds of reasons that I could have seen it and a few that has kept me from seeing it. I have it on a disc in my office in a drawer, and I haven't yet played it. But one of the reasons is that I think it's impossible to portray the suffering of Christ. Now, from what I've heard and what I've read, I suspect that the portrayal of the physical suffering of Christ was quite accurate historically. But I don't think there's any way that anyone can act out and portray the Son being forsaken by the Father. And my fear is then I would miss the point because we can only portray a look. We can't portray what actually took place in his own soul. But you see, it was at those moments that Jesus was satisfying this wrath of God which is 
the reasonable and rational response of God to our sin. That's what the wrath of God is. It's his reasonable, rational, objective, right response to our sin. And so you see, when Jesus was dying and was forsaken, that's when all that took place. There's an Old Testament image of the wrath of God, and it's referred to the cup of God's wrath. And you get this sense, and Jerry Bridges, our friend, has brought this to our attention um, in his book uh, about the gospel. That Jesus drank that cup to the very end. He drank the whole cup of God's wrath, and, and it's now empty. It's now empty. And so we see that the very work of Christ is for us, that God, the technical languages, imputed our guilt, uh, the sin, the guilt of our sin upon Jesus. He, he counted Jesus, our sin to him. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who has written a systematic theology, puts it like this. He said, he thought of our sins as belonging to Christ. And since God is the ultimate judge and definer of what is, really, what is real in the universe, when God thought of our sins as belonging to Christ, then in fact, they actually did belong to Christ. This doesn't mean that God thought that Christ had himself committed the sins or that Christ himself actually had a sinful nature, but rather that the guilt for our sins, that is the liability to punishment, was thought of by God as belonging to Christ rather than to us. Think about that. And, and I don't know how you think, but if you think in pictures, it might look like this just to help you. If you had two images on your computer and you clicked on your sin and the guilt of it, you could drag it over to the cross. And it's no longer on you. It's all on the cross. It's all on Christ. And if you would then look at you, you would realize there is no guilt for your sin. You see? And so Paul says, if there's really going to be reconciliation between us and God, then it was necessary for him to suffer. Why? Because apart from his suffering, it's necessary for us to suffer because of our sin. And therefore, if he's going to be the one to make propitiation, you know that word, Propitiation. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. Well, let me teach you another word. I wasn't going to do this, but we don't have time, but I'll teach it to you anyway. It's the word expiation. Okay? Expiation, ex, means to take away, to, to take from. Okay? So, so the work of Christ expiates. It takes the guilt of our sin away. But propitiates means that the end result is the one who was angry at you uh, uh, now views you, here's a word for you, propitiously. That means favorably. And so on the one hand, the work of Christ takes our sin away and it leaves then God thinking towards us in a propitious way. Propitiate. It satisfies his wrath so that now he favors us. And so his, his countenance is different, thus the benediction. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. It's the, the propitious countenance of God that's left after our sin and its guilt has been taken by Christ. And so that's, you see, where we stand. And that's why Paul said, this is necessary. There's no other way. I mean, even Jesus knew that there wasn't any other way. When he was with his disciples, he said, listen to, them. listen to me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, once he gets there, is going to suffer at the hands of the elders and the, and the, and the scribes and the, and, and, the, and the authorities. And they're going to kill me. I'm going to rise from the dead. And then a moment came. You can read this in Luke's Gospel. I think it's as dramatic a sentence as all there is in literature. It's a dramatic a statement as they're all as there is in history, where Luke, at a particular moment in time, chapter 9, verse 51, says of Jesus, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You get the picture at that point in time, Jesus is saying, all right, this is the beginning of this passion, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And you get the sense that when he sets his faith, it's one version, I think it's the New American Standard Version that says, he set his face like flint. It was just sternly put. And you almost, I mean, if you were the director of the movie, uh, I think what you would do is it would get dark and cold and Jesus would turn towards Jerusalem and his face would stone over with this look to say, nothing can keep me from going there. And he knew exactly where he was going there. And so after his crucifixion and resurrection, when he meets these men on the road to Emmaus, he says, didn't you know that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer? Why should this shake you? Didn't you realize it was necessary? How else could you be reconciled to God lest someone take your sin and guilt? And who else to do it but the very Son of God? And so... All of this is necessary because of the justice of God and because of the love of God. Because he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now this has come under attack variously throughout the history of the church. It's, people have assumed or thought that because God is love, there's no real reason then for him to, to, to satisfy justice, for him to have to call for justice. And yet the Bible speaks to us of God who is just, who can't overlook this. And the Bible speaks to us of Christ dying for our sins as a propitiation that would expiate, take our sins away, that would satisfy the very wrath of God, that would therefore bring reconciliation between us and God. And yet there have been those throughout history who have said, no, it really is just the suffering of Jesus is an expression of the love of God, that God is saying to us in the suffering of Jesus, that he loves us so much that he's willing to enter into our world and in entering into our world to take on the worst that we could ever imagine so that we could see that he loves us. But that minimizes the impact of sin in our life. Who will actually see that? And will that motivate us to turn and to love God if all he's done is entered into our world and experienced what we've experienced? Whereas in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, he not only enters into our experience, but he takes our guilt upon himself. So when we look at him, we see a deep love. A love that says, I love you like that. 
There have been others who said that Jesus is simply a a good example for us to follow, that we're to obey God even when it gets very difficult, even unimaginably difficult as he did for Jesus. And certainly Jesus is our example, that we're to follow after him and and be obedient. But, But it's way more than that. In fact, there are those in our own day who are writing things to say that since God has loved those who think that The father put the sins of people upon his son and made him suffer. It's cosmic child abuse. This written in a book called The Lost Message of Jesus by two men who otherwise would consider themselves to be evangelicals and part of the church. They write this. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of child abuse. And I would say parenthetically to put this in their context isn't a form of child abuse as you think. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense that he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is, is, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement that God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, But born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. This comes from leaders in what is often termed the emergent church. But we see it's this statement is a contradiction of all that's in Scripture about the very love of God, about our sin, about God's character of justice and love and about our need. It isn't cosmic child abuse. Jesus, as God the Son, joyfully and voluntarily came to take our sin upon himself, that we might be reconciled to God. And so this is really everything for us. (laughs) As we enter into this time of Advent and Christmas, we must cling with all of our mind and all of our strength and all of our soul to this truth, Christ for us, that he died for our sins according to the scripture because only then is he the Christ. But most certainly he is the Christ. For that he has done. It was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread and after giving thanks he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples as well and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what we're proclaiming here is that he died for us, our substitute, taking the guilt of our sin upon himself, that God's wrath may be exhausted, satisfied, the cup drunk to its end, so that now there's no case in glory because God's favor is towards us 
He sees us in a propitious way. His countenance, his shine, his smile, his affection is towards us. There is nothing that he has against us because all of our guilt is gone. It's on another. And thus we know that we're accepted by him as we trust him. We know that as we pray, he hears us. We know that if we're not getting the answer to a prayer that we desire, that it isn't that God has turned a deaf ear to us, but his loving heart is towards us. And either he's preparing for that prayer to be answered in such a way that will be more glorious than we can ever imagine, or he's redirecting our hearts. But it's not because he isn't hearing. It's not because he's turned away. It's not because he's punishing, because the punishment has already been taken on another. And we know, therefore, that we have a message that we can share to the world that is really, really true. And it is the necessary message because it was necessary for him to suffer, die, and rise. Because in his rising, he proved that everything that he did in his death was acceptable by his father. That's what we must cling to in these days. No matter what else we do in the next month, how many presents we buy, how many Christmas carols we sing, how many shopping days are left, how many, any of that stuff. This is what we must cling to. And we mustn't let anybody, anywhere, outside the church, inside the church, take that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even now as we come to this table, I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us here and you would convince us even more than we've ever been convinced that it was necessary for you to suffer, die, rise, and that you did suffer, die, and rise for us, for sinners like us. That all who believe in you, all who trust in you, would be forgiven, accepted, justified, reconciled, at peace with you. Father, we would know that. So, Father, I pray that you take this bread and this juice and you set it apart in such a way that will enable us to have a deep, deep faith and confidence in you, Lord Jesus, and all that you've done. Build faith in us. that we might know that it was for us that you died, necessitated by your Father's justice and love. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners. And because of that, without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who therefore 
believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners, the one who for us gave himself. To all those who therefore desire to live a life consistent with being a follower of Christ. If that's true for you, I invite you to come these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and just have echoing in your head for us. Pray with me. Father, I I do pray that we're overcome uh, by the great love which you have shown to us. It isn't just an example that you give to us, though you give us that. But Christ has come and he has done something that's unimaginable for us. But yet he's done it and he's done it to the full. That we might trust in him And in so trusting, be justified, stand before you, forgiven, stand before you, righteous. Father, I pray that you work that in us, that we know what that means in every moment of our lives. Father, there are those who struggle, and Lord, it seems that when our own personal suffering comes, uh, we do struggle. Struggle, grabbing a hold of, living in the assurance of the fact that you do love us and accept us. So, Father, I pray for those who are suffering now, for little Caden White and his family, that you would be with them to know that you are indeed with them and that you have promised that we can know the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings and in participating in such sufferings we come to know Christ deeper I pray that you would grant a deeper knowing knowledge of Christ even to little Caden and and to his family when Mimma Grogan as she recovers I pray for her that you would do the same for all those who care deeply for her and Father for others we pray for those in ministry that they would be convinced that Christ has suffered and risen so that when the message goes, that they'll have great confidence in it. Father, that should be true for all of us as we share our faith. I pray for Mark and Brenda Brown, Father, as they work with Crusade and be with them for Lauren Gish as she shares that ministry with them for Matt and Corey Podzis as they minister with Navigators. Father, that our campus would be uh, alive with the truth of the gospel and that it would be turned upside down or perhaps we would say right side up through the ministry of these and others. Father, be with us. We pray that during this season of the year, especially as we have opportunity to perhaps talk about Jesus with friends and neighbors and family that we may not have at other times of year because it's at least superficially portrayed before us, that we'd have opportunity to speak truth in love and that you would work in such a way to draw many to yourself. We pray too, Father, that we would never ever compromise the truth of this gospel. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to the benediction this morning is a response we've been using for years during this Advent season to remind us of the coming of Christ. And it's simply this, Christ has come, Christ is coming again. 
Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence, blameless, and now with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ is come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.